Good morning. You can be seated. Eugene Peterson tells a story. I, at least I heard him tell a story live one time. He said uh, he had a woman who came to his church and just showed up one day and uh, came for three, four, five weeks in a row. And Eugene Peterson would finish the service and try to run and catch her to say hello and to ask her why she was there, but he could never do it. She just would rush out almost before church was over and bolt out of there so that he couldn't catch her. And so one day he devised a plan to get to the door before her, and he got to the door, and as she began to leave, introduced himself, and she introduced herself, and he said to her, can, can I ask you a question? Why is it that you've been leaving so early before we could get to meet you? And her answer was this, because I can't believe how lucky I am. I can't believe how lucky I am. I can't believe how lucky I am that God loves me and how lucky I am that I get to be part of a church and how lucky I am that Jesus died on the cross to save me. And I can't talk about it. I get too emotional. And so I wanted to leave so that I didn't have to cry in front of everybody before I left. I just feel so lucky. Eugene Peterson tells that story around the translating of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And he wrote to his editor of the message, the Bible that he translated, and said, I'm going to translate the word blessed, lucky. And his editor said, are you crazy? <laughs> we are Christians, and people are going to think you're nuts. They will call me a heretic, and they will not buy your Bible. And so he translated it blessed. And he said at our conference, it was the biggest mistake of the book. I should have said lucky. And he says that because he knows what the word blessed means. It does not mean that we give something in this passage. That's not what the word means. It means that we are something. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes because he wants to establish right up front that the righteousness of the new kingdom is way better than the righteousness of any other kingdom. And it comes to the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount, what's about to come, is really, really hard. I mean, the kingdom is about loving our enemies and being sacrificially generous and treating other people as we want to be treated. It says, it's Jesus is saying to us, listen, listen, I know that my kingdom sounds too hard or too weird or even too ridiculous to work, but be assured that you are lucky to be living in it. We can't work up or manufacture just the right amount of meekness or just the right amount of mercy or just the right amount of mourning to guarantee the right amount of blessing. That is not what Jesus is saying. It is because God adopted us through Christ as his sons and daughters that we are lucky to be these eight things. We're fortunate that the really the best rendering of the Greek word, the most accurate would be fortunate are the poor in spirit. You can see why he went with, you can see why he leaned toward lucky. Fortunate are the poor in spirit. Fortunate are the meek fortunate. We have received a blessing. And this has happened in Christ alone. 
We are these things in Christ alone. We encounter the light of Christ through his work on the cross. We are set apart and empowered to live like he lived. And when we exhibit his blessing through imitation, we understand. We understand how fortunate we are. But it comes from him alone. It is granted to us. This is really important before we talk about any specific beatitude because this gets confused. The beatitudes get confused. The beatitudes, the be we jump right into this is an ethical teaching. Jesus is saying, if you're just peaceful enough, then you can have a blessing. Now, we're going to get there in a minute. But that's not what he's saying. You are fortunate to be peacemakers because peacemakers are called the sons and daughters of God. So you're fortunate to be a peacemaker. You're fortunate to be called into my family. You're fortunate to be children of God. The Beatitudes are found in Christ alone. He is the perfect living representation of blessing. No one lived them better than Jesus. No one has lived them perfectly, but he has. He is all eight of these things. The Beatitudes are evident as we, the family of God, are transformed to be like Christ. Just like the Sermon of the Mount, just like the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes are plural. The Beatitudes are plural. They exemplify the body of Christ, the family of God. They are us words, not merely you words or me words. When one of us is gentle, the rest of us grow in gentleness. When one of us pursues and are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, the rest of us are encouraged to do the same. Don't make them merely individualistic because that gets into some really weird books out there. Really weird. Really weird teaching. And by the way, that's weighty. It gets really weighty. I don't know about you, but if you read the Beatitudes individualistically, like I got to do all of these perfectly, that gets really weighty. It's less weighty if we have to do them together. You're naturally better at some of these than me. You've naturally walked in the blessing of these more. You've recognized how fortunate you are more than me in some of these, and I am some of you, some of you. so we work together. And we strengthen one another. The Beatitudes, so they're found in Christ alone. They are evident as we, the family of God, are transformed to be like Christ together. And the Beatitudes distinguish a cruciform life. These are completely countercultural. These eight, these eight things are countercultural. In fact, the epistle reading that Ryan read for us calls them folly, they're ridiculous. I mean, people just, what, huh? Blessed are, the, blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, you're nuts. Blessed are the meek? No. Blessed are the pure of heart? No. Can't be. Yes, they're countercultural. They are totally against what the world system says is right and blessed and lucky and good. I mean, the Beatitudes just start with the word poor, y'all. Blessed are the poor. Well, that's where it starts. 
That's countercultural. Okay, those are three overviews. I'm gonna just, we're gonna just look at a couple of these, we're just gonna look at a couple of them today to get the idea. You, you can go through them. Let's just look at a couple of them. I, I didn't pick my favorites, I, well, I did. I picked my favorites, <laughs> not true. I picked my favorites. First, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Apart from Jesus, apart from his death and his resurrection and ascension, we have nothing. We are totally incapable of earning citizenship into his kingdom. We are, we are void of being able to be kingdom people by ourselves. Listen, we are poor in spirit. You know, there's that book in Revelation where the saints come to Jesus and they say, we are here, we are naked and poor. We are wretched and blind. We, we have nothing to offer you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, actually, I'll give you gold to offer me and clothe you in white. But they are, they are aware our hands are empty. In fact, our backs are empty. We are naked before you. We have nothing to offer you. And Jesus says, yeah, good, good. I can give you gold and what you need. John Calvin wrote, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. One of our problems in the room, just very honestly, is that not, not very many of us have experienced devastating poverty, like physical devastating poverty. Not many of us have. We, we suffer from kind of a comparative affluence that we, we're not quite as rich as the guy next to me who's rich, right? Some of us have that. But I'm talking about devastating poverty. People who live in devastating poverty understand this beatitude. And actually, they understand the countercultural nature of it. What? Poor is good? can it be? Well, here's how it can be. The poor is good because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is something that is fortunate about being poor that we understand and recognize. And may I say, mysteriously speaking, the kingdom of heaven is enlivened through those of us who say we have nothing. We have no entrance ticket. It is only because of Jesus that we're here. Jesus is saying that those of us who recognize that we are totally lost and know that our only hope is in him and repent, we turn from the old ways, the other kingdom ways, the, the little, the, the puny righteousness that other kingdoms offer. And we fall to him and say, I'm here to buy gold. I'm naked and poor. I'm wretched and blind. One commentator wrote it like this. Congratulations to you who are reduced to nothing in yourself and have fallen on the mercy of Christ because the kingdom of heaven consists of such people. And, and Peterson, just this way, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. We're blessed to be poor in spirit. And people, they look at me, what? Really, I get this from Christians who have been Christians their whole life. That's not what it means. It's just been something else. No, it doesn't. In fact, it's funny. Luke is so clear about it. He doesn't put in spirit. Luke just says, blessed are you who are poor. Poor all the way around. Money too. Poor. Just poor. You're blessed. And woe to you 
who walk around acting like you're rich, Luke says, because you miss the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to get back to this in just a minute. Number uh, verse 5, 6, a little bit further down the road. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is countercultural. Hunger and thirsting for anything is countercultural if you don't have to, by the way. Honestly. Gimme, 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 right? I mean, this is really countercultural. It is, it is highly, it's folly, actually, to the world system that hungers and thirsts for power or status or affluence or whatever. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is odd. And the righteousness that we are to hunger and thirst after, the Bible is very clear, is both personally moral and social in its, out, in its outreading. Moral righteousness is that righteousness of character and conduct which pleases God. God wants us to hunger to please him. He wants us to live lives that are righteous. He does. This is part of righteousness. Okay? Here's the thing about when we use the word righteous. We really want to be an either-or people, don't we? It's either that for most of us, just personal, just personal morality, or it's the other thing that it means, it's social justice. But I'm here to tell you that God is not an either-or God, and his kingdom is not an either-or kingdom, and Jesus' Beatitudes are not preaching an either-or spirituality. It is a both-and spirituality. And righteousness in this case means both of those things, that yes, we are to be morally righteous, we are supposed to be pleasing to God, and we are supposed to work for the justice and betterment of those around us. It's both and. You don't believe me? John Stott. Uncle John. Here we go. <laughs> Biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole community, in the whole human community, as something pleasing to a righteous God. The arguments of should we be personally moral or socially just are absurd to God. The answer is, from God, yes. And we're lucky. And we're lucky. Why are we lucky? Because this hunger will be satisfied. Now, this does not mean that we just live now and righteousness, like we're just going to try to hang in, that, in there, right? That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that, you know, well, it, we shall be satisfied. There'll be no righteousness like this right now. There'll be no justice on earth. Be, I can't live personally. Just, don't read it that way. And some Christians do. They read it. We're just going to hang on for dear life until this is satisfied. And in the meantime, we're just going to do the best we can. That is not what this means. This is a guarantee by Jesus. It's a guarantee. You're fortunate, you're blessed, you're lucky. I am guaranteeing that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, there will be a day you will be completely full. You will be completely full. There will be a feast of righteousness that you'll get to sit down to. Guarantee it. And he guarantees that here 
And by the way, if we thought differently, he would not have taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it is an active act now statement he's asking us to pray for. And he says that we're lucky because of this. We can boldly hunger and thirst for righteousness guaranteed that he will satisfy our hunger. We can live full out. Pleasing God, standing for others. And therefore... The ultimate and only satisfaction for a follower of Christ is bringing righteousness and justice in the here and now. We're free to do it because we know it's going to be satisfied. You know, it's interesting. I, I told you before, I used to coach basketball. And um, I remember a couple of times, really bad coaching. But, you know, you kinda, you're kind of you out there and our, your team's warming up and you're watching the other team and you know you're going to win. And you just know you're going to win. Now, by the way, more times than not when I coached basketball, I knew we were going to lose. But occasionally, we knew we were going to win. <laughs> And the team would come over, and I would just say, just do what we practice. You're going to win. And they just look at me like, what? Like, almost like it's not, we, we don't really need to play the game. You know, I wouldn't say that, but we're going to win. I guarantee it. And you might say, well, that's really bad coaching. Those were the best games. Guys went out there in confidence, like, we just do what we said. Let's just do it. Coach said we're going to win. He guaranteed it. And they would just go do their thing. It would be easy. I'd sit there, drink some water, watch them play, you know, and they... It was amazing because there was a guarantee on the table that if you do what you know to do, I got good news. You're lucky. You're going to win. Your hunger will be satisfied. Go for it. That day is coming. And I want to say one more thing. It is only the kingdom of God that makes the offer for ultimate satisfaction. I know we're all a little bit sick and we're a little bit tired, but I don't know if you heard me. Other kingdoms will promise satisfaction. They are lying. If you're hoping in November that we will elect the exact right slate of candidates to find satisfaction, you're going to be disappointed. If you're hoping that your families will look or act or be sound enough to satisfy the deep longing of your heart, you're going to be disappointed. If you hope that the business or the ministry or the mission that you put together will in and of itself be satisfying. You will be disappointed. It is only the kingdom of God. It is only those of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness as he defines it that will be satisfied. Aren't we lucky? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children, sons and daughters of God. I love this word, peacemaker. It really, the best translation for it is shalom creator. 
Shalom creator. We are asked through the Sermon on the Mount and from creation itself, after it was all done, God said, good, this is all really, really, really good. And now you join me as co-creators. I'm going to give you the stewardship of this thing. And you're going to join me in creation. You know that we're creators? That is, that, that is our at the heart of our lives what God had made us to be. Co-creators with him. Co-creators. And you think that we get to create the most. That Jesus says you're most fortunate is you get to create. I get to create shalom. Wherever I go. what Jesus did. And the way that Jesus created shalom and invites us to create shalom is by inviting others to his cross. That is where peace is made. Jesus came to reconcile us to God and reconcile us to one another. And he asks us who are in his kingdom, he says, you are lucky because you get to join me in creating the very same thing. We get to invite people to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. This is, this is the, listen, I want to tell you something. This is maybe the greatest beatitude in the list. It absolutely has what most commentators and most theologians and this pastor says is the greatest promise. Blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Peacemakers are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the king of the world. Did you hear that? We're joint heirs. We get what Jesus gets. We're sons and daughters just like him to God Almighty. This is a huge piece of lucky You're the sons and daughters of God too, Jesus is saying. Can you hear him? <laughs> Create shalom with me. Reconcile people to God and one another. Come to the cross because then we get to be together as brothers and sisters. Brings whole new meaning to the words, our father, that he teaches us to pray. It's not just our father. Jesus is using our father to say, our father, me too. Who art in heaven. Well, I wonder what will happen this year that will give us a really great opportunity to be creators of shalom. If only there was going to be a live action example. <laughs> I'm going to think of one. It has been said that we are in this greatest time of kind of political turmoil ever. I think Jesus actually would laugh at that. <laughs> Just by the way, honestly, he had, um, he had a Roman government that vacillated between tolerating Jews and killing them. He had Jewish leaders who were so worried about their own kingdoms that they were manipulating, stepping on the necks is the technical term of other Jews to get what they wanted. His own disciples couldn't agree for five minutes. They had to argue about who was the greatest. So I'm not sure it's the, you know, biggest problem. But it's going to be bad. And we are going to be invited 
to join other kingdoms. Don't do it. Don't do it. I, I, you're not going to hear me say a political word right now. I don't care what side of the aisle you sit on. Don't do it. Jesus' answer was never to wield his superhuman power against others. His answer was to create shalom through sacrifice on the cross. That is why we're lucky. And that's the invitation this year. And that's the answer when we are prodded and poked to despise people who disagree with us. That is not the way of Jesus. That's not shalom. And we are when we are told with subtle language that we should hate people who vote a different way than us. That is not the way of Jesus. And when we are told that one political issue that degrades the, degrades the the dignity of human beings is more important than the others. That is not the kingdom. And I know I'm getting worked up. I'm not talking to the world. They're going to do their thing. I'm talking to us. We are lucky that we get to be creators of shalom. Don't give it away. After all, it is beneath the children of God. It is beneath us, friends. The answer to this and everything else is right there. And in a few weeks, we're going to spend six weeks walking toward it and taking it up and acting out together our good fortune as sons and daughters of God. How do we can cultivate our blessing and our good fortune? I want to give you just three ideas today that um, I actually think are probably in here. The first is this. I think we need to get a lot better at practicing lament. Do you notice that the first and last Beatitudes are in the present tense? Ours is the kingdom of heaven right now. Both of them are the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're lucky because the kingdom of heaven is ours right now in the present. The middle six are future. We shall receive these things. It's as if Jesus is saying, I get it. In the middle here, it's going to be a little hard. But what's the appropriate response? Well, he tells us. The prayer is, how long, O oh Lord? It's a lament. It's sadness about the way things are. And he says in his Beatitudes, blessed are we who mourn. It's an invitation to lament, to ask God, how long, how long will you let world leaders behave like tyrants and openly oppose your kingdom? How long will my children ignore your kingdom invitation to find shalom? How long will unrighteousness and injustice win the day? How long, O oh Lord? Practicing lament is radically hospitable. Want to know why? Because most of us are asking the same question. How long, O oh Lord? It gives voice to an already not yet kingdom reality. 
where we together get to say, this is not how it's supposed to be, God. How long will you hold out? How long? We can practice lament, and we can choose meekness or gentleness. We can just choose it. It's not, it is not the stoic or the proud or the self-aggrandized, but the meek that will inherit the earth. Perhaps the gift here is that we get to be gentle with others, but I actually think the greater gift is that Jesus is inviting us to be gentle with ourselves. That we get to be meek people, comfortable with our imperfection and his grace. We get to be gentle to those who are downtrodden. Perhaps the hardest thing for people who are considering a relationship with Jesus is that Jesus shows the meekness of the cross. This is what we read earlier, where Paul says, it is folly to them. It's so ridiculous. How can a king, how can a mighty king, creator of the world, actually have gone to the cross? It's insane. No, it's not. It's gentle. To despise the cross and to be put brutally down to death is Jesus being meek. Not getting off the cross and eviscerating his enemies, which, by the way, included us, was Jesus being meek. We can choose gentleness. We can choose meekness. Practice lament, choose meekness, and show mercy. Mercy, by definition, is undeserved. You don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it. It's undeserved, and it can't be earned. So, can I just say that? Like, mercy can't be earned because it's undeserved, right? I've, I actually have heard people say, well, he doesn't deserve mercy. Yeah, neither do you. Well, he didn't earn mercy. Yeah, neither did you or me. It's undeserved. It's unearnable. Mercy is shown by Christ at the cross, and we are invited to join him in it. Mercy's the harsh word left unsaid, the final blow undelivered, the invitation for us sinners to sit and eat a meal with Jesus, the welcome of we who are sick and dying to be rescued at no cost. And we're lucky. Because those of us who show that mercy receive that mercy. I don't know how to land the ship. Let's be quiet for two minutes. You bow your head and close your eyes. I'll watch the time.
We offer this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.